morning, Village Church. My name's David. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're in week five of a series called Big Questions. We're te- typically on Sundays, we teach through books of the Bible. We just go straight through. We've um, been taking this season to look at what the Bible says about some of the biggest questions and cultural topics of our day in many, many seasons. And uh, this morning, we're asking this question, why do Christians care so much about abortion? Why do Christians insist that abortion is a a moral issue? Why do Christians insist that it is a moral issue that shouldn't just be left to individuals to decide on their own? This is a big topic for us this morning, and as we consider it this morning, as we get into it, as we open up God's Word, um, we just recognize before we begin that this is... um, we live in a, in a world, in a place, we live in a country where um, since Roe versus Wade in 1973, we've, we've seen over 63 million abortions take place in our country alone. And there's people in this room who might feel shame and regret around this topic because of some sort of way that you've participated in it. Maybe um, you're sitting in this room as somebody who's had an abortion. Um, maybe you're a a man in this room who's convinced a girlfriend to have an abortion, or maybe you're a parent who um, watched a child go through an abortion and felt like you should have said more or you should have done more. Maybe you drove a friend to an abortion clinic. But before we begin, I just want to say really clearly that I'm just one sinful person who is standing on stage trying to guide us in this topic and think about it clearly and open up God's Word together. And certainly, I have no authority to forgive any sins. I have no authority to forgive my own sins. But when we open up God's word, we see every reason to declare that no matter what you've done, no matter how broken and sinful your past has been or your present life is, the Bible is really clear for those who turn to Christ. There's only grace for you. There's only mercy for you and, and forgiveness beyond what we could ever imagine. And so just as I was preparing is just feel very clearly like I would be very foolish this morning if we preached a message on this that was just like hopeless shame. The Bible's clear that for those who turn from sin and look to Jesus, he remembers our sins no more. In the words of King David in Psalm 103, God casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. We cling to Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. Amen? Yes, Bill Church? Yeah. And so you say all that, and, and even as I say that, I'm very aware there's many people who would say, David, you, you shouldn't give like a bunch of disclaimers to these things. You shouldn't give a bunch of disclaimers to hard topics. You're part, you're part of the problem. Churches are so soft on things. They're so soft on things like abortion. And now look at what has happened to this world. I think our response to that, I think our pastors would affirm this, is that we know really clearly there's heavy topics that must be addressed by the church. And there's difficult but straight answers that Christians need to hear on these topics. And if we refuse to give straight answers to these things, if we find a million reasons to always just avoid talking about these things, then we're gonna stand before God one day and we're gonna have deep regret and full accountability for that. That's the first reality. But the second reality is that We're never going to regret being a church that proclaims grace and mercy in every conversation, right? 
There's a lot of people who take pride in being less merciful than God, right? All in the name of protecting God and protecting his character. And these people just love themselves. God doesn't need me to hate people to protect him. Christ died on a cross so that God's grace is also just. God is just and he's the justifier. And he's just in his mercy towards us. He doesn't need us to be gatekeepers of his mercy. So we can't, we can't be telling sinners that they are good enough, but we also can't tell sinners that God is not good enough. This is the way I've been thinking about it as I prepared uh, this week. God help us be a church where no one ever gets to stand at this pulpit and proclaim less grace than the God who died paying for it, okay? And so this morning we open up God's word to talk about this particular topic. I hope you see really clearly that your pastors are not dividing this room by those who've participated in this particular sin and those who have not. When God looks upon this room, he sees those who are repentant of their sins and those who are not. It's as simple as that. And for those who mock God and defy him and sin against him with no shame, and those who take the lives of his children made in his image and call it good, we say really clearly they are not in a good place. And we pray that they would repent and receive God. Amen? God's quick to forgive. So two questions this morning that we'll go through. What should we think about unborn children? And can Christians support abortion? So we'll get into it, all right? First question, what should we think about unborn children? Does the unborn child have the value of a human life or is it just potentially valuable? All throughout this series, we've returned to Genesis chapter one because God set things right in the beginning, right? We should go back to Genesis because we're looking back and we know that is how God will restore things one day. In the first chapter of Genesis, we see the source of our unique human dignity and worth. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It only takes one chapter of the Bible for God to establish the sanctity of human life. Uniquely and inherently valuable is each individual. You can open up your Bible, the first couple pages are blank, nobody knows why, then the next page you like write your name, and then you get the table of contents, and then page one, image of God, right? God wastes no time establishing the worth of the individual we find here in the Hebrew, as many of you know, the Imago Dei, in the image of God. This is a great mystery to us, that in some way, God created all people to reflect himself, and he forms us in his image in a beautiful way. God didn't create us with just the potential to be valuable. He didn't drop us on this earth and say, I hope you do something great so you're valuable. The doctrine of the Imago Dei is a declaration of intrinsic value. I've had the privilege of teaching on the Imago Dei and the sanctity of life in our Apprentice Academy for the last few years. And one of the, um, 
One of the stories that I like to share often every year as we go through this is um, I remember being 19 years old, the first time I ever read the book, uh, 12 Years a Slave. The story of just a few of the countless lives who are suffering greatly in the American slave trade. And it's an entire system that is rooted in the rejection of the Imago Dei, an entire system rooted in rejecting the intrinsic value of human worth. And there's all sorts of images that come to mind when you think of the horrors of slavery. You think of um, slave ships, or you think of um, slaves being forced to work in fields. But the image that I think best encapsulates the evil of the ideology of slavery in America and the, the depravity of a whole system in a way of thinking. For me, it always, um, my mind always goes back to this particular scene of the auction where slaves are being bought and sold at an auction and they're inspected from head to toe. And the purpose is to measure their worth. How strong is he? How tall is he? Does he have any sickness that I should be aware of? And then all of these factors are brought together so that there can be a, a, a conversion into U.S. currency. The idea that a person's value can be measured by how they can serve me and how they can make my life more comfortable. That all of their worth is rooted in how they can serve me. What does Scripture say? Scripture says that is insane. The Bible says clearly, page one of our Bibles, the creator of humanity has measured our worth. You have the worth of one person created in the image of God, the same as each one of us. And so the Bible doesn't waste any time establishing the value of human worth. It takes one chapter. It's us who struggle with this. It's, it's us who spend a lifetime rejecting this and rebelling against this truth and how we mistreat each other. And so we're clear this morning. Every rebellion against the dignity of God's created people is a rebellion against God himself. And you look back in history, you cannot find a time in human history where humans were not in rebellion against God in this way. You look back at ancient civilizations, they would sacrifice children to false gods trying to earn their favor, sacrificing their own children as, as good luck charms. Or they would be civilizations that would abandon female children, just leave them to die because they only wanted males. Today we see cultures and nations at war with each other and, and speaking about each other in language that is dehumanizing, calling each other animals and pests and vermin and countries vowing to wipe each other off the face of the earth. Right now on this earth, there's 32 countries that are facing war or civil war or violent conflict. There's 450 million children living in these places, in areas that are affected by conflict. These children did nothing to deserve this. These are innocent lives that are discarded by the evil decisions of adults. And this has been a continuous theme since the fall. So the next question is, when does human life and human value begin? If we can agree that there's value at a certain point, when is that point? 
There's a few places we can look. We're going to go in the order of worst to best. We're going to start with the legal system. Our legal system is an illogical mess. It's trying to blend human emotion with science and in an increasingly secular society. And the majority of states in America, if a pregnant woman is killed and the baby dies, that's considered a double homicide. But that's because she wanted that baby to be born. If the pregnant woman walks into an abortion clinic, she can end the life of the same baby on her own. That is her right. And so the conclusion you make when you examine the wonderful American legal system would be this. An unborn child is a valuable human life if the parents want the child. If the parents don't want the unborn child, then it is just fetal tissue that can be discarded with no consequence. Right? And so our, our legal system is an illogical mess. When can we turn next? Next we look at science. What does science say? If we're honest, this, the question of whether a fetus is a human life is just not a reasonable debate. <laughs> it's so clear to us, and, and, and <laughs> every day the technology gets better and it affirms the things that we see in God's Word. At 22 days old, at 22 days after conception, the, the unborn child begins circulating its own blood, separate from that of the mother's. And you can hear the heartbeat. And before the baby is even born, that heart will beat nearly 60 million times. At six weeks, the child will have eyes, nose, a mouth, and a tongue, and you can detect electrical activity in their brain. And at eight weeks, all of the organs of the child are functioning. And of course, as people so often say, if we were to find a single cell a single living cell on another planet, all of the headlines would declare, we have found life, right? And for unborn children, we're told, it's just simply the potential for life, it's simply tissue. When is a child a child? When do they have rights? We're told their rights are gained when they travel through the birth canal. I was just thinking this week, I mean, we just wrapped up Jonah. I mean, so many people would mock us for studying a book like Jonah, right? Like, you believe a guy Jonah? was swallowed by a fish. That's what you're gonna go with? I think we could say, yeah, we do. And you believe that a six inch journey through the birth canal creates a human life. It's simply outrageous to claim that it's not a human life. It's outrageous to claim that, that the pro-choice position is the only position that cares about women. There have been hundreds of millions of abortions on female babies in the womb, and none of them ever had a chance to stand up for their own rights. Their fingers were formed, but they couldn't hold a, a picket sign, they couldn't hold a protest sign in Washington, D.C. And thirdly, most importantly, what does the Bible say? We read this this morning. One of the reasons Christians love Psalm 139 so much is because David declares to God, you knew me before I was even born. You were at work in me. Look at it again. 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139 is consistent with what we find throughout all scripture, that God is at work in us before we're born, that the mysteries of God are unfolding, creating life, and who are we to interrupt this most beautiful work of God? Look at Jeremiah chapter one, verse four and five. It says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. What about Job chapter 31? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? It did not one fashion us in the womb. The Bible's clear God is at work in the womb. Who are we to take this life away? So the question is, is this a human in his image or is this just God beginning to form a human? And again, all throughout scripture, there's no separation between the humanity of the unborn child and the child who's been born. We see this in Luke chapter one in a really incredible way. We see this in the story when Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist and it starts in verse 41. It says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. This is pretty incredible. John the Baptist is jumping for joy in the womb. He's the one who's soon going to be baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River. But at this point, he's just jumping. The Greek word for baby that's used in this passage for the unborn John the Baptist is the same word used consistently for babies who have been born all throughout the New Testament. We see this John the Baptist passage in Luke chapter 1 in the Greek, brephos. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is lying in the manger, we see the word baby again, again in the Greek, brephos. Luke chapter 18, verse 16, Jesus says, let the children come to me, very famous passage. And the context of this passage, one verse earlier, it says they were bringing even infants to Jesus. Again, in the Greek, same word. And then later, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, you've known the scriptures since you were a child. Again, same word. Unborn and born, scripture sees the same. And earlier in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is told by the angel that his child, John the Baptist, will be filled with the spirit. It says, even in the womb. This is a person filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Lumps of cells are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Plants are not filled with the Holy Spirit. People are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? The Bible's been saying for thousands of years what so many people pretend not to see in ultrasounds. 
And so people can scream as loud as they want that it's unloving to not be pro-choice, but scripture tells us that we are to rejoice in the truth. That's what love does, right? Love rejoices in the truth. And the truth is that our country has it so very wrong. I like this quote from uh, a pro-lifer, Kristen Hawkins. She said, if the womb had a window, no one would support abortion. This is why so many crisis pregnancy centers that are funded and supported by Christians, they're not filled with people in there just yelling at people, screaming at people to choose life. Typically, they're just offering to do an ultrasound because they just wanna show you the beautiful work of God that's happening in your body, right? And we, that's what you do when you're confident that the truth is on your side, right? You don't have to be screaming on a street corner when you're confident that the truth is on your side. You just simply show what is real. And technology is on our side, certainly. Roe versus Wade passed, nobody was getting ultrasounds. We have 4D ultrasound technology. Do I know what that means? Absolutely not. <laughs> At a certain point, I don't know when we stop with the Ds. Every time we add a D, we're more right. That's all I'm gonna say. One day you're gonna be pronounced dead. And the reason they'll say that is because your heart has stopped. And yet in our own selfish, willful ignorance, we refuse to pronounce the most vulnerable children alive when their heartbeats begin. So what should we think about unborn children? I think it's simple. We cannot pretend to be ignorant. An unborn child is a human life created in the image of God. That's the first question. So we ask, is this child in the womb really a human? And the answer to the first question, I think, is a resounding yes. The next question can be, can Christians support abortion anyway? Can we just support it anyway? If all these things are true about the unborn child, is there still a way for abortion to be acceptable? Is there some sort of utilitarian love here? Is it possible that yes, it's a human life, but sometimes it's more loving to end this life? You don't know the story that you're talking about. It's easy for you to say that about all these things in general, but you don't know the stories of these people. This is utilitarian philosophy. Utilitarian philosophy says, I will do what I think will do the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people. And when I look at society, I don't think our world needs another unwanted child running around. It's hard on the child, it's hard on the mother, it's hard on society, and therefore, I think abortion can be okay. Or if I abort this child, then I can finish medical school like I had planned, and then I'm going to spend my life helping a lot of people, and God should understand that, and you should understand that, and this all makes sense. I can map this out for you why this makes sense. And so Village Church, we say really clearly, it is not our job to think this way, amen? It is not our job to project out the future and explain all of our decisions in that way. We are not God. We do not know, nor do we control the outcomes of life. 
We simply turn to passages of Scripture that give us a clear direction for what we are to do now. Proverbs 31, verses 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's something we have clarity on, that we can just go and do. What about women living in poverty? What about kids growing up without a dad? What about cases of rape or incest? How can a narrow Christian position ever make for a better world? Because I can show you how I think this will make a better world. Certainly the work to be done in this world is endless. Certainly we're to love and serve and care for people in need, especially those who are most vulnerable. But the first question is simple. Is it a sin to take the life of an innocent child? And if the answer is yes, then we should be able to, to declare very simply, we will never sin our way into a better world. Right? We must trust the author of life and then move forward in love. That's all we have. We don't have the future. We don't have the perfect wisdom. But we have love. We have the ability to take the next step in love. That's why we love partnering with ministries who support people in difficult places like this. That's why we love partnering with Embrace Grace and supporting women who are in hard situations but choosing to keep their babies. And we celebrate them and we support them. That's why we have an adoption fund so that families at this church who see the insane financial burdens of adoption, and we can say, don't let that stop you. We're here for that. We're here with you. And so really clearly you can say, we can always do more, but we must always do right. right? Don't be paralyzed by all the things that we could do. We must still do what is right. I think this is the part where someone would say, I get all this, but I think we could still just agree to disagree. Should a Christian just say, look, abortion is sin. Yeah, we shouldn't expect non-believers to obey the Bible, though. We shouldn't be policing people's morality, knowing that they don't have the Holy Spirit. Look at Jesus. I mean, he spent more time ripping into the hypocrisy of the religious leaders I think our answer to that is this. If something is an objective moral evil against a helpless victim, we are not loving anyone by staying silent. There's countless sins of individual foolishness, and this is not one of them. If your non-Christian friends are getting drunk on the weekends, I absolutely would agree that they need to be transformed by Jesus a lot more than they need a lecture from you about what the Bible says about drunkenness. Like, I've tried it, I think, with some friends. Like, it's just not going to go well. I can just tell you that. They need Jesus. They don't just need lectures about your morality. But there's a, there's a difference between your non-Christian friends rolling out of bed at 11.45 a.m. on a Sunday morning with a raging headache and a $200 Taco Bell receipt 
There's a difference between that and saying, hey, it's, you know what? It's kind of everyone's choice on whether or not we want to build a society where someone can end the life of a voiceless, defenseless, innocent child. You see the difference? One problem with the utilitarian view or the view on individual freedom is that there's no end to this. I mean, all of the most comprehensive studies have shown very clearly that the vast majority of abortions are simply done for reasons of convenience. The average person is in their 20s or 30s and simply they don't want a child at this time in this situation. In the year 2020 in New York City, 28% of all pregnancies ended in abortion. And these numbers paint a horrifying picture of what so many people believe about the unborn child, that the children in the womb do not have intrinsic value. The children have value if they come at the right time, in the right season of life for me, when I can afford it, when my job is good, when my career is established. And so if pregnancy happens and it was an accident, then the child is a problem that needs to be solved not a child to be loved. And so if we believe that the pregnancy has nothing good to offer us, then we terminate the life to protect our lifestyle. And so abortion rejects the sacredness of human life, but it also elevates one life over another. It's an exaltation of self. We love ourselves. We love our plans. Again, Proverbs 31, open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I wanna say really clearly, if you believe that abortion is the intentional killing of an unborn human child, then you should feel confident in standing firmly against abortion. And you shouldn't feel silenced by any list of social issues where you could be more involved. I mean, we could all be doing so much more, and we must, and we must stir each other up towards these things. We can't be silenced because there's always more to be done. Every day is a new day to care for the poor, the orphan, the single mother, the refugee, but there is no day to support ending the life of an unborn child. Every day that the Lord gives us is a day to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before God. There's no day for us to play God. There's no day for that. We're not the authors of life and death. And we should be able to say clearly, if, if society never builds another orphanage and if no one ever adopted another child or never housed another refugee, it would still be objectively evil to kill an unborn child. I think all of the shouts of hypocrisy and trying to shame Christians out of their beliefs are just a distraction from the reality that we've aborted 63 million children in our country in just 50 years. We can't be silenced by arguments that are meant to manipulate us into silence. The reality is we have 4D ultrasounds now. We're not wrong about this. If your reasoning for why it should be permissible 
to kill an unborn child is because Christians don't care enough about other things or Christians are hypocrites. So who are we to have opinions on this? I think you should be afraid to stand before God one day because God is not interested in playing games of comparison. God is very clear. All evil is evil at every time and in every moment. And we will all be held accountable to how we walked forward in this life facing evil, caring for those who need it. We speak from a foundation of the cross. We know we are sinful people. We know that we're desperate for forgiveness, just like everyone else. And so we summarize it all. What should we think about unborn children? We cannot pretend to be ignorant. And can Christians support abortion? No. We cannot pretend to be God. We are not to be orchestrators of outcomes. We simply do what is right. That's our role. So I want to end with this. In the last few decades, there's been a number of improvements in medical technology, including our ability to diagnose things in the womb, to diagnose the likelihood of babies in the womb developing certain medical conditions. And this has led us down a tragic path where we're seeing medically selective abortions in numbers we never could have imagined. And recently there were articles circulating where the headline said that the country of Iceland had eradicated Down syndrome. That sounds like a great thing, but what the article explained was that for several years now, any child in the womb who they believe was likely to be born with Down syndrome was aborted. And so the number of children with Down syndrome in Iceland was down to zero. And so for decades, we've seen places where selective you know, gender abortions are common, and now we add selective medical abortions to the list of tragedies in our world. I think we ask ourselves, why abort a baby girl if you wanted a baby boy? Why abort a baby with Down syndrome? Why abort a baby who might have intellectual limitations if you wanted a baby without that? People might believe they have all sorts of complex and good answers to these questions. But ultimately, the answer in our hearts is something like this. We do it because that's not the story that I'm writing. Right? That's just what our heart says. That's not the story that I want for me. I have plans for my life. That's not in my plans. I don't want a child at all, or I don't want this child. We got married. We were ready to have kids, but not like this. I can't raise a child with special needs. I can't do that. We had dreams of what our family vacations would look like, what our retirement would look like, what it would be like when the kids were out of the house. This is not the story that I'm writing. Do you see the danger of that though, right? That's not my plan, that's not my idea, that's not my dream, that's not my story, that's not my future. You start going down that path, you bring a lot more verses right back in. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You think that something is a threat to the story that you are writing and you don't even know if you're on the last page of your life, right? 
Those who participate in this are trying to be authors of life and authors of death. And when we think like this, we have no respect for the eternal realities of the universe, that our time is nothing compared to eternity. That whatever God calls you to in this life, if you do it for his glory in fullness of everything you have, it will be worth it. You have to believe that, right? James 4, 13 to 14. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You start coming up with ways to devalue the lives of the most innocent. <laughs> Scripture's gonna remind you about your life. If you are trying, <laughs> this is the most clear way we can say this, I think. If you're trying to be God, then God is against you, right? Whether it is sex-selected abortions happening all around the world today, think of sex-selected abortions that took place in the Roman Empire. You think of those people in power who use war for selfish gain, and they love violence because it will benefit themselves, and they're not counting all of the cost of all the bombs that will drop and all of the children that are hiding under their beds in fear and growing up now without fathers or mothers. Whatever it is, if you're trying to be God, if you think that you should take the controls of life and death, God is against you. And most people probably don't take that statement very seriously, right? God's against me. What's he going to do? Come down here? Yep. Yep. God is going to come down. And the pride of man will continue to overflow with our selfishness, our autonomy, our arrogance, our confidence. But one day, that will end. That is certain. I wrote a lot of those words on Monday of this week, and I wrote those words on Monday this week knowing that the Macintosh family was on a plane as I was writing those words, flying to Albania to adopt a little girl from an orphanage. And the little girl that they're adopting is a girl who has some special needs that will likely bring all sorts of unique struggles and require unique care for the rest of her life. Ecclesiastes chapter 11:5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones, in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You do not know the miracle of how God forms life in the womb, and likewise, you do not know all the ways that God is working in this world. Let me just tell you, Dan and Becca, who we love so much, <laughs> they didn't get on the plane because God pulled them aside recently and showed them every future chapter of their story, and it looked good, and they gave God a thumbs up. <laughs> Dan and Becca got on that plane because they trust the God who is writing the whole story, and they believe that God has given them clear direction for this one next single chapter, 
and that is sufficient for today. Amen? Yes? You could say it this way, we must learn to trust God one chapter at a time. I don't think there's anything wrong with new technology and tests that allow you to see if the baby in your womb might have developmental issues, but just personally, I can say my wife and I, we loved telling the doctor, no thanks. It's just like a fun way to draw a line in the sand and say, this is God's story. This is our child no matter what. Because when that child arrives, you know what else is going to arrive with that child. What else is going to arrive with that child? The strength from God to face that day, right? Whatever may come. Just as God is faithful for those who walk into a doctor's appointment and find out that they lost their child, God is faithful to give them in that moment the strength they need to face that day. Amen? Yes. And so ultimately, my plan is not the plan. The sufficiency of God is the plan. The plan is that I know the God who is sufficient in these days and the next days. My plan is not the plan. God's sufficiency is the plan. And everything flows out of the sufficiency of God. Do you believe that, Village Church? Yes? Yeah. And on Friday night, 7,000 miles across the world, the final paperwork was signed, and we can now officially say the newest member of Village Church is uh, Bella McIntosh. So we got a picture. Yeah. 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 And I know I said one more thing, but um, I don't care. Uh, one more, one more thing. Just this last Tuesday night in the state of Ohio, the citizens of Ohio voted on the question, should having an abortion be a right that is protected by the state constitution? 2.2 million people voted yes, 57%. And Ohio has now become the seventh state to to classify abortion as a human right in the state constitution. If you turn on the TVs the next day, um, all of the talking heads, and they're all the worst, right? I don't, you probably have your favorite. I probably don't like your favorite. I don't like any of them. Uh, <laughs> next morning, every talking head is running their mouth and they're saying, Americans have spoken the pro-life that's a losing ticket. No pro-life Christian will ever win an election if they are not willing to compromise on this issue. What do we say to that? Here's what we say. We say, so be it, right? We're not wrong about this. We'll die on this hill. The truth is on our side. Those are human lives created in the image of God. I'll lose a thousand elections over that, right? We will not be hard-hearted. People need our help. They need our love. Children in orphanages need us. Pregnant teenagers need us. They need our love, support, but most importantly, this world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ if it will ever change. And so we move forward in love, but we don't back down from the truth. Amen, Village Church? Yes. We're going forward in this. Some good news for us this morning. Christians can defend the lives of all children, knowing that God is the author of every story. This is good news for us. Will you pray with me?
God, your word has so much for us. And I thank you, God, that we can think clearly about things that are so heavy in this world, that are so hard. And all the stories in here and how we interact with this and how our lives maybe have interacted with this. God, we just declare that you're a God of forgiveness, you're a God of mercy and love. God, we just want to do what is right. We want to walk in this world with wisdom. I'm thinking here, and maybe people feel so heavy about sins in their life, sins in their past, and yet probably have a whole bunch of sin coming in our future that we're just going to need you for that too. And so, God, you're good yesterday and today and forever. And God, we want boldness to think rightly about these things. We want wisdom in how we proclaim what is true and how we defend the weak in this world. God, we ask that we would never become callous and hard, that our love for people would always be rooted in you and your love and grace and mercy for us. There's so many ways we can do this wrong. There's so many ways we can become prideful and arrogant and unloving. May we just really truly love people because you've loved us. And thank you that you've rescued us. We thank you as we as we rejoice in one adoption on this earth this morning we rejoice in our adoptions eternal and everlasting with you you're a good God who's rescued us when we didn't deserve it may we look at this world and love them in Jesus name Amen